All right, it's my time to preach. Pastor Peter's had three sermons already today. I'm just doing one, and I'll try to keep us on time today. Uh, but we are back in the Sermon on the Mount, so you can open up to uh, the book of Matthew. We're finishing chapter five today. And I want to start with this. I bet you you and I have something in common. I bet you we share a similar frustration. I bet you, like me, you hate to be ignored. You hate to be ignored. Maybe you're a parent like me, and uh, you give your kids some clear instructions. I need you to do this. These are the outcomes I'm expecting. I expect it to be done by this time. And then you come back at that time, and nothing has been done. And you say to your kids, what, like, what's happening? I told you to do this. And they look at you like, you were serious? What? Yes, I was serious. What made you think I'm not serious? Or, or maybe you're uh, at work, you manage people, and you have a project coming up, and you told the people who work for you, we need to do this and this and this. These are the expected outcomes. This is when I need you to have it finished by. And then you come back a couple days later to check on the team, and they've done nothing. And you say, why, why haven't you done anything? You're like, oh, we didn't realize like that was serious. Yes, of course, I, of course I wanted you to do it. I asked you to do it. It's frustrating to give people clear instructions, clear expectations, and then you come back to check on them and nothing has been done. And you know who else we have that in common with? I think God gets frustrated about that as well. And so as we finish chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount today, uh, we're jumping into a text that, in my opinion, is probably the most ignored teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's the teaching that a lot of us who've read the Bible, we've read it several times. It's not that we don't understand it. We have just decided to ignore it. I think it's the most ignored teaching of Jesus. And I think on the return of Christ, he'll come back and he'll say, hey, how did this part go? And we'll say, wait, are you serious? And he will not be happy about that response. Let's get into it. Before we do, let's do a quick recap so we know what kind of context we're coming out of here. Jesus has been talking about righteousness. What kind of righteousness is required in his kingdom? And for Jesus, righteousness is a relationship word. It's not just about moral codes and ethics and obedience, but righteousness is about relationships. So if you have a good relationship with your spouse or your friend or your kids and things are peaceful, things are happy, things are going well with you, that's a righteous relationship. So we can have righteous relationships with people or unrighteous relationships. There's no peace, there's conflict, there's fighting. That's an unrighteous relationship. And it's with people, but also with God. There's a righteous relationship with God where sin is forgiven. There's no barriers between us and him, but there's also an unrighteous relationship with God where there's sin in the way. We've run away from him. We've walked away and rebelled from him. That's unrighteousness. So righteousness is about relationship. And Jesus said the kind of righteousness we need as we are a part of his kingdom is not just moral and ethical standards, following the do's and don'ts, being obedient to law, the kind of righteousness, righteousness Jesus wants is a righteousness of the heart so that our heart motivations and attitudes actually line up with the external actions of righteousness. It begins in here. He doesn't want us to just obey the rules, but be morally corrupt internally. So the question is, well, what does that look like, Jesus? And so through chapter five, he actually gives us six examples of what righteousness in his kingdom looks like in very difficult circumstances of life. 
So he says things, he always introduces his example by saying something like, you have heard it said this, but I say this is the new expectation. So you've heard it said, don't murder. That's a good rule. And most of us have not broken that law. Good for you. But he says, actually, I say, if you have anger in your heart, it's as though you're murdering someone in your heart. Or you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's a good rule. It's, you know, most people have been able to fulfill that rule. But Jesus says, I say, even if you lust after someone with your heart and your, your thoughts and your desires, you're committing adultery in your heart. So he's looking for a righteousness that permeates our inner world, not just external actions. And so he continues on in this line of thought to show us where, what righteousness looks like. And as I said, the most ignored teaching of Jesus in the Bible. You ready for it? We're in Matthew 5, verse 38 to 48. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I'm sure a lot of you have read this before. Maybe for some of you it's new. But in summary, Jesus is saying, don't resist people who are trying to do evil things to you. He's telling us to love our enemies, not fight them. He's telling us to, to, to turn the other cheek when someone is attacking us. If someone strips off your shirt, make sure they don't leave without taking your jacket as well. And like, is he serious? Is this for real? Did you actually mean that, Jesus? Now, no need to raise your hand publicly, but tell yourself the truth in this moment. Do you take this teaching seriously? Or do you tend to ignore it? Do you tend to justify why, in your situation, you don't need to actually do what Jesus said? Like when you think about the people who frustrate you the most, when you think about the people who've harmed you the most, when you think about the people you disagree with the most, quote unquote, your enemies, are you thinking about all the ways you could love them and bless them? Or are you thinking about all the ways in which you could show them the grill of your truck, which is more typical in your mind? See, most of us, most of us, and our natural reaction, our natural response to enemies is to fight back, to do harm, to want poor things to happen to them because of what they have done to us. But Jesus twists that around and said, no, 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 the actually the opposite response is what shows me there is a righteousness in your heart. Now, I want to ramp this up even further because Jesus ramps this up. Let me show you what he's doing here. Consider the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's been talking about righteousness, and in the process, he's been talking about people who make you so angry, you want to murder them. He's been talking about people who've taken you to court. 
He's been talking about someone who's committed adultery against you, maybe your ex-spouse. He's talking about people who have broken a promise. And while he's talking about all this, the people listening are thinking about all the people in their life who have frustrated them the most, who have harmed them the most, who've been their greatest quote-unquote enemies. And now Jesus says, love your enemies. Of course you're going to ignore him. Of course you're going to immediately say, that can't apply to my situation. I don't want to love my enemies. My enemies deserve to suffer, to die, to disappear. He can't actually be serious about this. Now, I think he was serious. I want to spend some time trying to convince you that he was serious. But also, I want to try to convince you that what he's saying is actually good. And what he's saying and what he modeled for us is actually going to produce better results than what we think comes more naturally and what we actually want to do when people harm us. So let's look at this. Let's start again at verse 38 and jump from there. He says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So again, Jesus is quoting something they all know. He's quoting some Old Testament law. And he's talking about law that we can find in Deuteronomy 19.21 and Leviticus 24.19. So let's read them quickly. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24 gives a little bit more context. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So this is an Old Testament law, which some have called the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity. Basically, by example, if after church today you're in the parking lot and you got in a fist fight with someone and you, you know, punch them in the mouth and their tooth knocked out, If we were following the law of reciprocity, your punishment for knocking their tooth out is that you need to have your tooth knocked out. And it'd probably be the pastor who gets to do it, right? Just I could have a little bit of a cathartic moment. And that's the law of reciprocity. And what, or what happens, you're, you're mowing your lawn and you're chatting with your neighbor who's sitting out there drinking coffee and, and kind of watching your work and you accidentally on purpose run over their foot and you amputate a toe what's your punishment? You lose your toe, right? Get out the, you know, hedge clippers or whatever, knock the toe off. That's justice. Or a kid is playing with a stick as they do, and they're flinging it around and they poke somebody's eye out. What's the punishment for that child? They get their eye poked out. That's the law of reciprocity. Now, this is not a law that we follow. And I'll, tell, I'll show you why. It's because of Jesus' teachings that we don't follow. But think about this law, because it sounds barbaric, it sounds terrible, it sounds horrible, but it had a really important purpose. It was designed to provide a measure of justice for those who've been afflicted, while, and this is the key, putting a limit on the level of retaliation. If you think about specifically in the context of maybe a nomadic people group or like an agrarian society where you don't have like a well laid out justice system, what often happens is family blood feuds, people retaliating, people ramping things up through revenge and retaliation. What this does is it actually gives a clear law to say if this happens, you equal it out and justice has been done. 
Because we know by what you and I, in just the general public, what we know about human nature is that when we think we're getting justice for ourselves, when we think we're paying back someone for what they've done to us, we're not actually evening things out. We tend to actually ramp it up. So think about, you know, kids show us so much of our own sinful nature. Think about Joey and Jimmy playing together. And Joey has a truck, and Jimmy wants the truck. So Jimmy takes Joey's truck. What does Joey do? Joey takes the truck back, then takes the truck, and whacks Jimmy over the head with it, right? That's playroom justice. But Joey hasn't actually made things even. He's actually ramped it up through revenge and retaliation. So now Jimmy's going to come back, and it's going to become a huge thing, and there's going to need to be intervention. So the law of reciprocity was meant to limit retaliation so that justice would be done and it would be over, not turning into huge, massive feuds that go to the level of, you know, whole family blood feuds and war. But think about, think about, again, why this law was in place. I think about the story of Samson. If you're familiar with the story of Samson, he was one of the Israelite judges in the book of Judges, and he was given supernatural strength He was a warrior. He was called to rescue God's people from oppression from the Philistines. But most of the time, he just used his gifts for his own personal gain and his own blood feuds. So part of his story is he gets married um, to a Philistine woman. And at the wedding, he sets up this bet with a bunch of the guys at the wedding. And the guys trick him and they win the bet. And he loses all this, uh, I think it's articles of clothing they has to give them. And he's really mad. He's a really emotional guy. And so he storms off and he leaves his new wife behind. And he left her for so long that the father of the bride remarried her to another man. So Samson comes back to claim his wife. And the father-in-law is like, I'm sorry, I thought you abandoned her. So I've remarried her. So Samson loses it. And he wants to get even. So what does he do? The very reasonable thing. He catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, puts a torch in the tails, and sends them into the Philistine crops to burn everything down. Right? He's evening it out. So the Philistines get mad. They come after him. And Samson, this supernatural warrior, slaughters scores of them. And then the Israelites show up and they say, Samson, what are you doing? Like, these are our rulers. These are our masters. They're going to harm people. They're going to re- get revenge. They're going to start a war with us. Why are you doing that? This is Samson's response. Judges 15, 11, I merely did to them what they did to me. Re- really, Samson? That's, but that's when we have someone harm us, We think that when we retaliate, we're evening the score, but human nature is always to escalate. So the law of reciprocity was meant to limit that escalation. But even though there was some value to this type of law for that season of human history among the Israelites, Jesus says, not good enough. He says, actually, it's better if there's no retaliation at all. It's better if there's forgiveness and grace and love for those who've harmed you instead. Listen to what he says, verse 39 to 42 again. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, instead of slapping them on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow for you from you. Do not resist 
an evil person. The word resist there, it's a a term that was used in military for a a violent resistance to an attack. Basically, to resist in Jesus's mind here is to fight back against evil with the same kind of weapons. So if someone comes to attack you, well, you're justified to use force and use violence and use whatever you need to do to put them down and put them in your place. Jesus says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. So he gives us four examples of what he's talking about. Someone slaps you, give them the other cheek as well. Someone takes your shirt, make sure you give them your coat. If someone asks you to go a mile, go one more. Give to anyone who asks. Now, at first glance, and this is why most people ignore Jesus, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is asking us to roll over, to just let anyone do anything they want to us, which is really a recipe for for more bullies to come and take advantage of you. But at a closer look, Jesus is doing something really, really interesting here. And I want to show you what he's doing. But first, I need someone who's willing to get slapped. Actually, I already have a volunteer. Jonathan, I asked Jonathan, I asked Jonathan if he would do this. And he legitimately, come on up. He was like, you can slap me. I'm like, Jonathan, I'm not, like, this is going to be on the internet, man. Like, I, but come on up. So I just want people to be able to see this. Maybe just step back a little bit, Jonathan. Um, so Jesus says, here's his first example of how to respond to an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So Jonathan, can you point to your right cheek, please? Okay, show, show the people on this side which one your right cheek is. Maybe come over here. Come over here so your right cheek is in view of everybody. Which one's your right cheek? That's his right cheek. Okay, so if I'm going to slap Jonathan... What technique will I use to slap him? Everyone wants to give suggestions, right? So here we, yeah, JP in the front row, he used his left hand, right? So I could slap with my left hand, but I'm not left-handed. And 90% of you aren't left-handed. I'm right-handed. And so my my first response to slap someone is not to go with my left hand. But Jesus is specifically saying right cheek for a reason. So if I'm going to slap Jonathan on the right cheek, I'm going to slap him with my right hand, and it would be a backhanded slap. And in the first century in particular, like, like, I think it's still the same today. I feel, I don't know about you, I feel if someone slaps me with the back of their hand, I am way more offended than if someone slaps me with the front of their hand. You know what I mean? But in the first century in particular, slapping with the back of your hand was symbolic of more than just violence. It was actually symbolic of me saying to Jonathan, I'm better than you. I own you. You're nothing to me. Get back in your place. The backhanded slap. I do love you. I'm just pretending. This is an example, okay? So it was common for a slave owner to slap a slave with the back of their hand. So Jesus is saying, listen, in this situation, if you are in a place where you're oppressed, You're the nation of Israel. Rome has oppressed you. They are your overlords and masters. You have no agency, no power. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, like a slave owner slapping a slave, what should you do? Should you fight back? Is that going to do anything? Is a slave uprising actually going to help? No. What should you do? You should show them your left cheek. Which one's your left cheek? 
Oh, so now he's inviting me to use my right hand, my open hand, my good hand to give you a nice, firm, open-handed slap. But what is he communicating symbolically when he stands up after I slapped him and shows me his left cheek? What he's communicating is, you don't own me. You're not my master. I'm a human being. Slap me like an equal. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to resist evil with evil, but I'm going to show you that I have value and I have worth. Do you see how that would do something in the mind of the attacker? Listen, maybe it won't change them, but it says something powerful. It says something much more powerful than just retaliation. Thank you, Jonathan. Give me a hand slap. Well done. You can go have a seat. Let's, let's look at one more of his examples. He says, if someone forces you to go a mile, go two miles. He's referring to a specific situation that was common in the Roman Empire. There was a law that allowed Roman soldiers to commandeer a person to carry their gear. So a Roman soldier, as they traveled through the empire, they would carry a backpack that weighed about 100 pounds. And that's tiring for days and weeks on end. So they were given the right to grab anyone off the side of the road and say, you need to carry my gear for a thousand paces. And you had to do it. If you're walking around, you're running your business, you're out with your family, whatever you're doing, you had to go with that Roman soldier and carry their gear for a thousand paces. And so Jesus says, go another thousand. Well, why? Because the first thousand paces is slavery. The second thousand paces is freedom. So again, a slave uprising, attacking a Roman soldier would be stupid. Why would you do that? That's not going to communicate anything. That's what they expect. They're experts at putting down slaves and those they are oppressing. But what are you communicating when you offer in freedom to serve your enemy? You're saying, I'm a human being. I have agency. I have value. I have worth. And I'm going to choose to love and bless and serve you today. What might that do in the mind of an enemy. Jesus is giving us creative examples of nonviolent resistance to evil. Things that will communicate something much more powerful and profound than merely fighting back evil with evil. New Testament authors pick up on this. Romans 12, 17 to 21 is a great example. Do not pay anyone, pay, repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God promises he will take care of it. He will deal with it. He's better at it than you are anyways. Leave it in his hands. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil evil with good. If you find yourself in a situation where you lack power, you lack agency, someone's looking down on you, someone's oppressing you, someone thinks less of you, someone identifies you as less than human. 
It, the, the response is not to fight evil with evil, but to find a creative way to resist in a way that declares, I am human, I am loved by God, I'm made in his image, slap me like an equal. I'm going to serve you and bless you and show you how I use my agency in a way that changes things, in a way that doesn't give more power to evil, but brings good into the world. Do not fight evil with evil. Jesus doesn't tell us not to fight. He just gives us better weapons to fight with. He shows us that there's greater power in the world than violence and retaliation. He shows us that love and sacrifice and service are actually more powerful to bring transformation into the world than we ever thought possible. Let's keep reading in the passage, rereading verse 43 onwards. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I think one of the things that could make a Christian stand out more than anyone else in the world is this, if we actually took Jesus seriously and loved our enemies and responded in creative ways to the evil done to us and the evil done in the world, not responding to evil with evil, that's what's expected. But we have unique spiritual, supernatural resources to respond to evil in different ways so that we're not slaves to evil. Do you know when you respond to evil with evil, you are a slave to evil? It's controlling your actions. But when you respond with love and grace and service, that shows the sign of strength and the power of God in a person's life. And he finishes with this verse, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. He's not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about maturity and completeness. That you have a righteousness that's in your heart, and a righteousness that's in your hands. Not just external actions, but motivations and actions all working together shows that you have come into a place of maturity and completeness as a follower of Jesus in his kingdom. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I can read your mind. You ready for me to read your mind? The thoughts of your mind are about to come up on the screen. Here it is. You thought that, didn't you? Or some variation of that phrase. But what about, but what about if someone's going to kill you? Can, can you use violence to defend yourself? But what about if someone's going to harm your family? But what about the police? Can they use force? But what about when terrorists kidnap people? But what about, but what about, but what about? Now listen, there's lots of good conversations to be had about these things. And I would not consider myself a strict pacifist. I believe the scriptures leave room for proper use of limited force, but that's a conversation for another time. The problem with but what about statements is that we use them to get ourselves off the hook and give us a reason to ignore Jesus's teachings. In this moment, I don't want you to think about Ukraine defending itself 
or the response to Hamas terrorism, or hypothetical attacks on your family, or what police and soldiers are empowered to do. Think about what Jesus is saying to you. Don't allow extreme examples to get you off the hook for the everyday responses you're required to make when people come after you. How are you personally responding to evil? Or are you making excuses to ignore Jesus? Jesus didn't say never respond to evil. He just wanted to show us a better way. And he didn't just wax eloquent. He didn't just make a big speech on a mountainside and expect us to go do it. He actually did it. He did it. Isaiah prophesied about what Jesus would do. Chapter 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Jesus turned the other cheek. He went the extra mile. He literally offered the shirt off his back. And to those who asked for a loan, he paid the whole debt, the debt of our sin. All the forces of evil directed their power upon Jesus, the Son of Heaven, the ultimate innocent victim. No one would have blamed Jesus for responding differently to the evil done against him. Yet he allowed evil to do its worst so that he could defeat it. Did you know the Bible does not look at the cross as the defeat of Jesus? Sometimes we have this view that Good Friday was when evil won and Satan was laughing and Jesus was on the cross, but then it was good news on Easter Sunday. No, the Bible actually talks about the victory occurring on Friday. Sunday was just the vindication and confirmation of the victory. I'll prove it to you. Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 15. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2, 14 to 15. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It was when Jesus allowed evil to do its worst to him that he achieved his greatest victory for us. It was Martin Luther King who said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus showed us how it is done. But aren't you glad that Jesus loved his enemies? Because we were his enemies. Your sin made you an enemy of God subject to his wrath and judgment. Yet Jesus came and loved his enemies. He loved us and sacrificed himself for us so that he could turn his enemies into friends. Aren't you glad he loved his enemies? Don't you see the power of enemy love? Don't you see the transformational nature of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile? It's the thing that has changed the world the most. And yet we think it won't work with our coworker that we don't like. Or our friend who lied to us. Listen, I know that there's so many hearts and minds triggered today by a unique situation that's in your heart and in your life. I get that. I'm not pretending to understand. I'm not pretending to say it's easy. But but look at Jesus. Look at what he did. 
Romans 5.10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus. Many in history have used violence and hard power to try to conquer the world. Jesus used self-sacrificing love to conquer hearts and minds, to make his enemies his friends. And I'm so glad he did. So what we're going to do today, we're literally out of time. But the way I wanted to conclude today is we're not going to do a song and, and try to get everyone whipped up to be all joyful. It's okay to be a little bit melancholy after today's message. But Jesus said, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I don't think Jesus expects us to be really good at loving our enemies immediately. And again, he's not expecting just actions. He wants to actually do a work in our hearts. And I think one of the first steps toward having Jesus heal our hearts so that we can love our enemies is that we do exactly what he suggested here. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are giving you a hard time. Pray for those who have made life more difficult than it should be. And he's not saying pray that they die or pray that they <laughs> suffer. He wants you to pray blessing. He wants you to pray for them the same blessing you've received when you were God's enemy, that God came into your life, spoke to you, gave you grace, forgave you and transformed you. Pray that the enemies of God would become friends of Jesus. And so I just want to lead you in prayer. You can just stay in your seat. And, and this is by invitation. This may be harder for some than others. But we're going to pray this prayer in two parts. One, we're going to thank God that he loved his enemies enough to give us forgiveness and welcome him as friends. And two, we're going to start just small and just pray that that person you're already thinking about, we're going to pray that God speaks to them, saves them, transforms them, turns them into a friend of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we recognize that in our sin, we were declared enemies of heaven, enemies of God, subject to your wrath, subject to judgment. But in your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus, not to conquer us through violent force, but to conquer our hearts through love and sacrifice to make we, your enemies, into friends. We thank you, God, that you loved us enough to do that and have shown us, Lord, how to do that ourselves. And so, God, we pray, secondly, that you would give us the grace to be able to do what Jesus said, not ignore him, not justify our actions, Lord, but truly from our hearts to begin to be able to love those frustrate us, who hurt us, who give us the hardest time. And so as Jesus asked, Lord, we pray for those who persecute us. We pray for those who've made life difficult. And pray, God, that you would speak to them, transform their hearts, save them by your grace, and turn them into friends of Jesus. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Go walk with Jesus.